Hello, everyone. Welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions on Twitter using hashtag Disrupt TV. Also a reminder, we have over 185 interviews with incredible business leaders, best-selling authors, uh, innovators, venture capitalists. Uh, so check Check out Disrupt TV on SoundCloud and iTunes. It's um, my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, Forbes. He's a best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business and a really awesome follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray. Hey, thanks a lot, Vala. We missed you last week. Welcome back. And I'm um, with my co-host, Vala Ashar. He is one of the top CIO, CMO influencers in the world, a heavy contributor to Huffington Post, and more importantly, one of the most insightful tweets you can follow at V-A-L-A-A-F-S-H-A-R. So let's go on. Who we got today? We're going to kick off our show. We're delighted to have Adrian Fisher, CEO of Tinkerbots. Uh, a highly experienced and a passionate executive, Adrian is the CEO of Tinkerbots, a toy company that produces building robotic kits for young children and adults. I found out about that talking with Ray. <laughs> as, as CEO of Tinkerbots. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Ray was going to build a robot before we kick off the show. We didn't have time. As, as CEO of Tinkerbots, Adrian's goal is to drive Tinkerbots to fulfill customer needs, her responsibilities in this role includes developing high-quality business strategies and plans, leading and motivating her teams to advance employee engagement and deliver to ensure flawless execution worldwide. You can follow all the news about Tinkerbox on Twitter at T-I-N-K-E-R underscore B-O-T-S. Welcome, Adrian, to Disrupt TV. Hello. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so Hello much. Hello from Berlin. <laughs> Welcome. This is awesome. So tell us about your role at Tinkerbots. How did you end up in the toy industry and coming up with this awesome stuff? I mean, my kids can't stop playing with this. I can't even get any time to actually play with this thing because they have it all the time. So, <laughs> Well, uh, that's very nice to hear. Um, well, originally, uh, I have not started in that uh, robotic segment. Originally, I've been coming from the very classic toy industry. So from traditional companies, so my background is more traditional and uh, from companies who are, who are more than 100 years old, um, but have a very high value uh, for products. And most of them are handmade or made in Germany or either both. And over the years, I have uh, recognized that there's a, a lack of companies offering innovative toys. While the market changes and everyone knows and we have to adapt for the changes of the future. So everyone is aware of that. And um, I had then the chance to enter Tinkerbots, uh, which is su such an innovative company and an innovative uh, founder team. And the products are uh, such a high quality and 100% made in Germany. So everything we do, we make in Germany. Uh, I must say, since I have uh, joined Tinkerbots now, uh, I have been focused on the development of the organizational structure so that uh, we could solidify our company and the national and, of course, also in the international market, bringing the company on the next level, on the next stage. And our goal uh, from Tinkerbots is to become a reference in STEM technology for toys and robotic toys. That's awesome. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about what is Tinkerbots about? And maybe you can share with us, you know, the notion of my first robot and, and how it works. Yes, I will be pleased to tell you. Well, originally, the founder, Leonard Wuschitz, uh, uh, was studying on the Bauhaus University in Weimar. And uh, he had, uh, in the course, he had uh, the task to uh, build a dream machine. And he said, well, I would really like to bring Lego alive. Oh, my Lego I have at home. He's a big fan. And so he built this prototype of Tinkerbots. And uh, he has been winning a lot of awards from very early stage. And so he has recognized that there's a potential to build up a company out of that. And very soon, Christian Guda and Matthias Burger joined him. And they three together founded and built the company in 2013. 
and uh, they did a crowdfunding campaign because they thought it's the best to test the performance and to see to get a proof of concept. And so in 2014, they did this uh, crowdfunding campaign on the platform Indiegogo. And they launched six sets to see which set will perform best. And in only 45 days, they have uh, raised $300,000. Uh, so much more than that was the goal from us. And uh, so in total, we have uh, done two finance rounds. And now I can proudly say we're a team of uh, 30 very creative and super cool people, including mm -hmm. our production and students. And um, probably I'm the only not uh, geek and not coming from technical background. Um, so, I, so they always think I'm coming from the boring part because more traditional, but of course, it ha everyone has its own role in the company. And uh, let me explain you about, you mentioned my first robot. And uh, let me mm -hmm. explain you first what Tinkerbots is, and then let's go and dive into my first robot. Um, well, Tinkerbots uh, is a modular robotic system, modular robotic kit. And uh, you have different motion models. It starts all with a power brain, a, a red cube, which provides the energy and has the intelligence. I always, well, we always compare it a little bit like um, the human. So the power brain is the intelligence and uh, is uh, the brain and the, the heart. And then you have different motion models uh, where you can turn or where you can move and uh, where you can move on with a motor, where you have a grabber. So you have different models. You can just plug and easily plug and play together and can get started. It's That's why I say it's for kids, but it's also for adults. And you have an app, so you can remotely control with the app, but you can also go without the app. So you can teach in and program up to 30 seconds. You can program it and then yeah, you, you, yeah, you just record something and then you can just play the record mode. And uh, there's, there's, uh, everything is possible because you can also uh, have this adapter and you can also put the adapter on our bricks, on our product, and then you can put some other bricks from other companies on, for example, Lego. And everyone has that at home. So you can build whatever you like. So it's fun and learning at the same time. And you can even program over the computer. Um, so you can even program with Arduino. And uh, there's coming up four new sets. And uh, three, three of them is the robotics series, where you can also do graphic block-based programming language. And we have also uh, a very cute uh, friend I have brought with me today. <laughs> this is my first robot. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> so, and... Um, my first robot uh, is also some of our new kids and also already starting at five. But of course, the whole, whole uh, fun is for young and for old. Is uh, There's no age limit. You know, what, what I really love about this is that it, it took me back to somewhere between Kicker Toys and Legos, right? But the thing is, like, the notion of power and the notion of gears and being able to build stuff, it, it, it's really fun. And, and the kids picked it up on an iPad very quickly. They download the app. You can control it. You can record it, emotions happen. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really fun. And, uh, you know, and I think all the adults like are trying to play with it, but the kids kind of get, get there first. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very cool. Um, you know, so this is the educational toy industry, right? So what's, what's shifting here, Adrian? Like, are you, I mean, did you come from a world of wooden, like the, the wooden toy world, like, you know, of, of the, the habas and the wooden wagons or, you know, do they have to modernize it? to get to the next level or is this like the future between you know IOT kids and you know and, and fun well we think it's uh, the combination of both um, it's it's not the question of uh, offline or online playing I think it's about the question how to put it together and when you look at uh, the STEM area, um, over the last years this segment has been growing so much um, over the last years there were the uh, jobs three was growing three times faster than in non-STEAM categories. So it's clearly showing that there's a huge potential and that uh, industry is growing. And uh, yeah, as I said, there's a, uh, we have to adapt a new way of learning. And I mean, parents constantly are already searching for innovations that helps their children to evolve because we are forced to deal with technology in the future, right? So this will increase in the future 
tremendously in, in work, but also in private life. So I think there's not the question of if this or if that. I think it's the combination. There's even existing some wooden toys already with their intel intelligence inside, as you have just mentioned, wooden toys. And uh, we want to give children the opportunity to get in contact with technologies and new media in a playful and child-appropriate way. Because kids, they're, they're so curious. And in that age, they're, they're like a sponge. They mm. absorb everything so fast. And it's, so e it's, it's such an easy way to, to learn about engineering, about robotics, mechanics, construction, and I remember when I was a kid, um, the progress was st still much slower than it's today. And today, it's, and if I talk to the today, it is not what is going to happen tomorrow. It's going to be much faster. And I think a good example is learning a language. When you're a child, you have this bilingual, yeah, education and bilingual kindergartens, and it's so easy for kids to pick up and to learn two, three languages at the same time. But compared to being an adult, I think it's pretty hard in that age to learn, right? It is. It really is. You know, it's exciting because uh, the Internet of Things uh, impact in industry and businesses is explosive growth. You have artificial intelligence that's uh, everywhere, including uh, making its way to uh, products and, and toys that can help children. Smart robotics. Um, Several U.S. analyst firms are projecting that smart robotics will be somewhere between 80 to 100 billion dollar industry by 2025. So to teach children at an early age to be comfortable building uh, robots, I think is awesome. Uh, it's going to prepare them even more for the future of work, where it's very likely that you're going to be engaging at some point with smart robots. Uh, so uh, this leads to my question. Lots of money from venture capital is going into IoT, AI, and smart robotics. Uh, I know you're joining us from Berlin, if I'm not mistaken, Berlin, Germany. What is the startup scene in Berlin? And uh, can you share with us, you know, how does that compare to perhaps what we're accustomed to, raising Silicon Valley, I'm in Boston, and certainly two very thriving ecosystems in terms of early investment in emerging technologies? Well, uh, yeah, as you just mentioned, uh, from, I'm, I'm, a, I'm from Berlin. I'm born and raised in Berlin. And uh, I can only say that Berlin has always been a melting pot of creativity. And it has always been a very multicultural city. Here are living people from all over the world. Um, for example, if you compare in our company, we at Tinkerbots, we have people from Brazil, we have people from Mexico, Italian, Russia, Ukraine. So we call it multiculti. And this is how our city is. Our city has always been multiculti. And everyone can be here. And people don't care if you go naked on the street or if you're moody and yelling at people. No one cares. And I think this is the nice thing here. You don't, you don't necessarily need to be dressed up or you need to behave in a certain way. Everyone is just here as they are. So <laughs> feel free to be like you are. Uh, has its good and its bad sides, right? Um, <laughs> but it's not only that. It's also historically, Berlin is such an interesting city. I know we have from the past a very heavy weight on our shoulder. But I think for us as Berliners, I think it is more about that we are very aware of um, the responsibility that we have here. And we don't want to be divided and we don't want to be this and that part. It's one city, and yes, it's a little bit a rough city, but it's a brilliant city. And, and it's not only that, it's also still affordable for people to live here. I mean, compared to other cities, you just said Silicon Valley, but also New York, London, Paris, they are so much more expensive than our city is. Let's hope that it stays for a while like that. And I think that companies have realized that potential, that here are so many creative people and uh, that, that you can really find here, yeah, you can, even, you can still find offices <laughs> and um, you can still, uh, yeah, you can find good creative people here, something new, something fresh, something different. And um, I think um, that, for example, interesting is if you take 
all startups together from Berlin, it would be the fifth largest employee in Berlin ahead Siemens. Wow. And over the, yeah, and over the last uh, three years, the amount of, of young people um, coming up and coming and entering startups has almost doubled in Berlin. So it's really booming the city. Only in three years, it doubled. Is there a specific startup area where like the startups are, or is it all across the city? Um, well, yeah, of course. There's this classic area uh, where you like to be. Of course, it's Prenzlauer Berg, which is quite popular. Yep. You have yep. Friedrichshain, which is still quite popular. It's it's not only because of all the startups is there. I think it's a very cool bar scene and very nice restaurants from vegan to vegetarian to Vietnamese to whatever, everything. And you have so many good clubs and um, I think you have all these old nice houses. But now I can really see that it is popping up in several areas of the city. It's not only only this area or that area anymore. You can also see even um, in southern Berlin, it, there starts to get a scene. And we are, for example, in Moabit, in Bedding, and we are uh, in uh, Bernau, a little bit outside. So everywhere startups now. So even in Potsdam has a very big startup scene. That's terrific. So we have a lot of uh, startup founders and CEOs that have been guests on our show and watched your show. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs who may be thinking about starting a company in Europe, specifically perhaps even in Berlin? What 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 some lessons learned that you could share with um, our entrepreneur uh, who watched the show? Well, I think it's um, of course uh, every country every country has its own particular character and its own difficult and it's difficult to generalize that um, and to say it's only here like that or here like that but i think that in general the best way to enter a new market um, and in, in a file where you're not experienced is um, or a country where you're not experienced is to work with experienced partners with experts who have the knowledge and have and know the local requirements and are aware of that and uh, each country has different mindsets and different market circumstances and different rules and laws, etc. And um, so if I, for example, compare that now with Tinkerbots, um, our product uh, has, so the customer is expecting different things uh, than, for example, the customer in US. For example, in Europe, uh, for parents, it is very important that they have the choice if they want uh, the kids to play with the smartphone or without. They want to have the choice yeah. and to choose. And um, uh, I've just seen a research. Uh, I've just seen a research, and there was it was said that children, sixty-four percent of children between ten and eleven in U.S. they have their own smartphone. In Germany, it's only thirty percent. So there's still a huge, huge, huge difference. And oh, so wow. I think, yeah, and I think. Beside all the research as everyone does, of course, and to prepare for the market, I think sometimes it is just easy to have a local partner who knows the local market because even in very small countries, there are differences in, in the country. For example, if you look on the very south, uh, on the south of Germany, then <laughs> next to that border, there's a country where people do speak more than one language and each area has so many specific things to take, to take care about and to be aware of. So I think it is very good to work with a local together. Terrific. Makes a lot of sense. So um, when you think about what's going on in terms of like uh, startups and leadership, um, you know, any specific advice for companies, um, you know, in terms of uh, starting in Europe, that's different than starting somewhere else that you see and, and any, any and any lessons learned for just being a woman and in the leadership position. Well, uh, I think in general, it is more important uh, than the genders, maybe more important the actions and the attitudes in workplace. I think, um, of course, not it's, it's not for every country, but in general. And in my, um, in my opinion, most important thing is to be true to yourself and have very clear of uh, who we are and, and the kind of leader we want to be. Always have respect, of course, but don't be afraid. I think too many people are afraid of what is if happens this and what is if we happen to that problem. Just take action. Take it as a challenge, uh, especially in, in Europe. People 
often see that a bit different than in US. And I think you should see it everything as a challenge. Um, every, oh, there's always the only thing which is true. There's every day coming up something newer. And uh, I think uh, great leaders are the front runners, right? And be positive and love what you do, because I'm, I can say I'm a believer on leading by example. So, and not I know that not every day it is easy, and not every day is easy. But in general, I think it matters how I react on things and how I solve it. Let's not talk about the problem. Let's talk about the challenge, how to solve. And uh, yeah, this is what I think. And I can only say that um, in, in, in my career, I have seen, uh, yeah, I, I had different, uh, different people, different mentors who inspired me and where I could, uh, I could look up and uh, see how they react and how they yeah, take topics and uh, solve them. And uh, especially for today, I can say uh, at Tinkerbots that uh, I have a great input, uh, of course, from our founders, but also a huge input from our investors that comes from, from completely different fields. And they're bringing a huge source of input for me. And that, yeah, and that for I feel very glad to be able to count on them anytime where I need something or where, uh, yeah, I, I have a question mark somewhere. So, uh, so I think it's good to have that around. We can, we can feel your passion. You're terrific. Thank you. That was great advice. We can. Here with Adrian Fisher, uh, CEO at Tinkerbots. And uh, more importantly, get one of these for Christmas. These things are awesome. Like to occupy it. It's the future of education, technology, and fun with kids. So more importantly, you can follow Adrian. Um, you can follow the company handle at tinker underscore bots, B-O-T-S. And more importantly, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for that I could be here. And good night from Berlin. Good night. Have a great weekend. Wow, that's awesome. As uh, and both of us are parents, Ray, and you know, <laughs> I, I now know exactly what's going to be top of my list. The I have to get another one. They're fighting over this thing. So, like, this is ridiculous. I, I, I would like nothing more than my kids to get excited about robotics and AI and, and, and uh, building things. It seems to me an advanced, uh, the next step with Legos. So, well, if we, if we only think bigger, that would help us. That's, that's right. <laughs> great, great, great segue. Our next guest, we're honored to have Michael Sonnenfeld, the founder and chairman of Tiger 21 Investment Group. In 1999, Michael founded Tiger 21, and Forbes called Tiger 21 the wealthiest, most social networking, most powerful social networking group in the world. Uh, and, and, and Michael founded the group so that successful entrepreneurs could share uh, their hard-won experiences with each other. Tiger 21 provides members with powerful perspective their own personal board of directors made of visionaries, executives, entrepreneurs, investors, and the best and brightest minds. We're, we're talking about you know, 500 members who collectively manage, I believe, over 50 billion in personal assets, so an incredible group. Michael is also an author of a new book, Think Bigger. Boy, all of us could benefit from that. And 39 other winning strategies from successful entrepreneurs, a must-read book. We'll talk a lot about the book in the next 20 minutes or so. Michael is a great follow on Twitter at M-W-S-O-N-N-E-N-F-E-L-D-T. Welcome, Michael, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Um, one of the things that always fascinated me was um, why? What got you to found Tiger 21? Right. What was the impetus? I mean, who were the people that were involved? What was that catalyst that said, we really need something like this? And, and the world does need something like this. So. Yeah. So, you know, Adrian, who was just on, is such a perfect picture of an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And when you're building businesses, you want to learn from other entrepreneurs. But there was no organization for what entrepreneurs, really successful entrepreneurs do when they sell. What's next? And so we created Tiger 21, if you will, as the graduate school for two other great organizations, Vistage, which has 20,000 CEOs around the world, and YPO. And those, the most successful of those joined Tiger uh, when they've had a liquidity event, and they come once a month and explore really how do I preserve wealth? What do I do with my kids? Really, what's next? And that's why I had a problem and I uh, created something to solve it. 
Yeah. And the basis of it seemed like it was more than just a club of, of, of people that were successful. It was about getting through a period of their life and a period of their times. Um, you must have gone through that. Like what, what drove that process? Yeah. So I was lucky. I had developed a real estate project in the 80s that was the largest commercial renovation in the world at the time. And I sold it when I was 31. And as lucky as that is, when you're 31 and you have a great success, you're not thinking about wealth preservation and kids. You're figuring it's so easy, you're just going to keep doing it again. I need so a new I sports car. I need a yeah, new house. Yeah, <laughs> and you, you spend too much, you invest too much. And it wasn't that I was stupid. I just wasn't thoughtful about wealth preservation. And so um, I made a few investments, started a few companies. I'm a serial entrepreneur, and it didn't go as well as I wanted. And finally, I went back to my roots of real estate and had a chance to do it one more time. But the second time I sold at 43, I said, there must be people who have thought about this deeper, harder, and more successfully than I have. I don't want to have to start a company a third time. So I uh, was in a CEO group, and I looked around, and I said, hey, six of us have already sold our businesses. We don't need to be learning about how to make our CFO productive or our sales team productive. We've already sold the business. Let's get together and think about wealth preservation, asset allocation. How do we deal with our children and not screwing them up, frankly? And uh, do we have a responsibility to our society or to our alma mater or whatever it was? And where do you think about these issues? And so we created Tiger 21, for the lucky, successful, mostly first-generation entrepreneurs to explore these issues because the leveraging impact, I suspect that uh, when we just heard about Tinkerbots, which is a fantastic example, it could be in my book, um, when you think about it, some of the investors that Adrian was talking about themselves may have been successful entrepreneurs and now they're trying to help a new company and giving them the advice that they learned over their own careers. That's terrific. Well, we heard, Michael, we heard Adrian talk about understanding the local culture, market fit. Perhaps it could even be uh, the use of smart devices and how you can't compare U.S. to Europe. Even within Europe, adoption of technology may differ. So lots of dimensions in terms of being mindful and understanding where to make smart bets. So what, what are some of the most surprising obstacles that entrepreneurs need to overcome, but they don't? based on your experience of mentoring, you know, thousands of entrepreneurs. Sure. So first of all, you know, there's a chapter in the book, Think Bigger, called Know Thyself. And mm -hmm. I give a lot of examples where people who really are not cut out to be entrepreneurs have a great idea and they take on an extraordinary risk and they fail. Entrepreneurial activity is largely failure in the face of optimism, or maybe optimism in the face of failure. Uh, there's a high death rate. In fact, in the United States, one of the troubling signals is in recent years, there was a year where more corporate deaths than corporate births, because we have some declining uh, forms of entrepreneurialism. Um, the other thing is when you know your limitations, you can try and hire people to fill in your blind spots. Now, blind spots by their definition means I can't see my blind spot. But uh, Adrian mentioned something that's another chapter in the book about mentors. If you take 100 people in any industry and line them up from least successful to most successful, I'll guarantee you that the half that are the most successful overwhelmingly have mentors in their relationships, and the half that are least successful overwhelmingly have excuses. I tried, I couldn't find one, I didn't know how to find one. And you know, Adrian's, Adrian's just a perfect example. Mentoring is absolutely critical, but there are certain traits that successful entrepreneurs generally, there's exceptions to every rule, exhibit. The most important one is grit and determination. Mm -hmm. And it turns out grit and determination are better uh, predictors of success even than intelligence because over the long term, the thing that allows entrepreneurs to start and fail and start again and fail and start yet again is grit and determination. And it's been proven time and time again. And there's another thing. I don't know if you guys know the marshmallow test. It's one of the most famous tests. They took three and four-year-olds at Stanford University 
and they put a marshmallow in front of them and said, um, if you don't eat the marshmallow for 20 minutes, you can have a second marshmallow. And only very few of these kids could wait the 20 minutes. And then they tracked the kids for 40 years. The marshmallow test is the single best predictor for success in life of any psychological test. It's been proven in geography after geography, in university after university, and it's all about delayed self-gratification. Oh, yeah. And the life of an entrepreneur is reinvesting and going for the long term, but eventually, if you have it right, you're going to have a winner. <laughs> I feel that every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, no, that's awesome. So you, you're seeing challenges, right? You've seen across the decades, different trends, different challenges organizations have faced, sometimes financial, sometimes you know, talent, sometimes different areas. What's changed now? between you know, when entrepreneurs were starting out five years ago yeah. versus 10 years ago, even 20 years ago. Yeah. What's the big well, difference? It's interesting because, again, Adrian had this fantastic example of the difference between Berlin and New York or whatever it is. But I would say the thing that's even tougher for her is the international competition, meaning for the first time, this interview can be seen in China, and in 24 hours, they can be creating uh, a competitive product. So the scalability of information is what has completely changed. It's not the local differences that are making it so different. It's that we live in a global, scalable world, and that really is uh, the big difference. I just uh, retired last week as chairman of a public company that was in the solar lighting business. When I started the business 30 years ago, I never heard from another solar lighting business. Literally, every day today, I get 10 emails from somebody from China, from another solar lighting business offering their sales. So I think international competition and communications, uh, you can't hide anymore. No matter what you do, the fact that you just showed this product, somebody's making it in China, and it'll be being sold in a matter of uh, months under a different name. Wow, that level of competition is that fierce, that intense, yet yep. distribution is much more frictionless. Yeah, absolutely. Got it. So, uh, Michael, okay. you, you dedicated a few chapters in your book in terms of the responsibility of an entrepreneur to use their business and their wealth for bettering society. The CEO right. of my company uh, often says the business of business to, is to improve society. So right. in, in what ways can wealth be used to leverage philanthropic initiatives, political, even improving quality of life at home and, and yeah. interests that make you a, you know, a better, more interested person? Right. Well, first of all, you have to remember there was a very famous Nobel Prize winner named Milton Friedman that said <laughs> the purpose of business is to enrich the shareholders and nothing else. And if you went to the University of Chicago in 1960, that mantra would have been uh, put into you. Today, there was recently a study of 5,000 millennials that said the purpose of business is to solve society's problems. So you have to start with the fact that we've had a dramatic shift in perceptions about what the purpose of business is. And in fact, in the United States, we have a new form of corporation called a B corporation, which allows companies to say we're not only responsible to our shareholders, but we're also responsible to our employees and our communities uh, and so forth. But, you know, one of the big debates is many entrepreneurs feel that by building an honest, good, decent company that's environmentally responsible and puts people to work is the greatest social good that they can do. Uh, what we found in Tiger is most of the Tiger 21 members say that's not enough. If I'm lucky enough and smart enough to have become really successful, by the way, we tend to think luck favors those who are prepared and ready to take the risk. So yes, luck does, does play a role, but when you've created great wealth, it's impossible not to look around and realize the disparities of the world. And uh, as an example, this week we're dealing with the disaster in Houston and we have a group in Houston and our members are really organizing both to give charitable contributions to places like the Red Cross and on our website, you'll see that we're doing that. But some of our own members are also organizing together to support businesses, to give them a loan, to get them back and operating. So it's not charity 
to the person who may have had a terrible tragedy, if you can get the business back and operating with a grant, they'll take care of getting their people taken care of. So uh, social entrepreneurship is spurning this entire field of social impact. And we don't have to debate on this show whether these hurricanes, which are the worst in history, have anything to do with climate change. I personally think they do. But we have challenges, and uh, the purpose of living is to address these challenges, and we have great opportunities to do so. Your bosses is doing that, and uh, many of our members are saying the most important thing after their success is to lead a life of significance, and that's how they're doing it. No, great points here. You know, hey, one of the things I love in your book is uh, that point of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations Yeah, and, and how to avoid that. And, and it typically happens in three generations. We see that all the time. What are some of those fundamental values that um, entrepreneurs or just even anyone can instill in their family structure so that doesn't happen, so that people still have the hunger or the desire to succeed or, or even have a path to find that meaning in, in terms of as each yeah. generation um, deals with their wealth or their lack of wealth. You know, every language has a variation. The Dutch call it from clogs to clogs in three generation, and the Japanese say from rice paddies to rice paddies in three generation, and it goes on. The first thing is that um, we had a member who said, I'm not giving my kids anything. And we thought, oh, here comes another hard luck story. You know, I had it tough. They're going to have it tough. And they said, you don't understand. I'm willing to invest everything in them. And what he was saying is, I've been lucky. I've been successful. And uh, I don't want to just make it so easy that my kids, that I give them enough to do nothing. I want to give them enough to do anything, but not so much to do nothing. I want to treat, I want to give them respect. I want to mentor them but I want to teach them the value of hard work and the value of being responsible. And frankly, when you have the good fortune, the value of giving back. So this notion of investing in your children is absolutely critical. And there's another part of it, which is, do you treat your kid equally or equitably? And what I mean by that is some families want to preserve a family farm or they might want a child to go into the clergy or be a teacher or a, a public servant. So they create a special fund for the child that's going to take on this particular role. Well, that's not treating kids equally. It's treating them equitably. But families have values. And the most important thing that we've learned is if a family can be explicit about their values, it's not just their financial capital. It's their social capital, their intellectual capital, their reputational capital. These are things that we all know about. But it's so easy to talk about the inheritance in terms of money, but a good name can't be replaced. And teaching kids uh, that from an early age is very important, responsibility to a community. So what we found is communicate, communicate, communicate. Families that come together and talk about these things, honestly, that's how you preserve uh, not the wealth of money, but the wealth of personal capital, intellectual capital, and reputational capital from generation to generation. That is terrific advice. Living a recommendable life, so important. So one of the things Ray and I love about this show is people get to hear and see and learn from people like Adrian, entrepreneurs who are building companies and, and thinking about a purposeful uh, product and service that can help advance humanity. But they're not in the news every day. Um, there are folks like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or, or Sergey and Larry and some of these incredible entrepreneurs and now business leaders where we see every day. Based on your book and your research, are they, I don't want to call them underdogs, but are, they, are there some um, maybe relative unknown um, folks that are doing extraordinary, remarkable work that you can share with us? You know, I, I actually think Adrian is more representative in total. You know, all the jobs outside of the government have been created by entrepreneurs who had a dream. It wasn't that they were trying to get rich. They saw an issue. They saw an opportunity. And uh, Tiger is largely what we call the Main Street entrepreneurs rather than the Wall Street entrepreneurs. And uh, you know, in the book, we talk about Five Guys Hamburgers, which is probably the fastest growing, most successful franchise uh, in the country. We have a member I talk about in the book, Robert Oranger, 
who was fascinated about diabetes and then had the news that no parent night likes. Weird coincidence, he was bringing diabetes uh, treatments to, to market, new and exciting treatments. And then he had two kids that turned out to be diagnosed with diabetes. What, what more beautiful way to be entrepreneurial than to be curing or addressing the disease that your own child has. And you may realize, you know, a lot of people used to have to carry around a syringe uh, to uh, when they have diabetes. And he's now developed a nasal spray that goes quicker into the bloodstream. So that's using a kind of creativity. We actually have 25 entrepreneurs. One that's an amazing uh, story in the book is uh, a guy named Pete Settle who runs a bus company or ran a bus company but his secret weapon was treating his employees better. So his employees were better motivated. He treated them with respect. And he said, you know, when you treat your employees with respect, if they, you know, trip as they're getting into the bus, they don't put in a claim. And when they turn a corner, they're a little careful, more careful not to, not to get into an accident. And he was paying tremendous amounts of money so that an ice cream truck would show up during the break and just give his men and women or truck drivers an ice cream and made made a real difference uniforms and so forth and you know you said something about uh, what a young companies do google found out you, you guys in silicon valley that what makes a high performing team it, it turns out be nice it's hard to believe that's an absolutely critical thing but most young employees are looking for a mentor who they can uh, turn to, and it wasn't the most technically competent boss. It was the one that had a little time to listen to an employee's problem. Might have been a personal employee, a personal problem, or a professional problem. But be nice turns out to be a really important thing for success. Love that! Wow, this is great advice. And uh, Pete Settle, he's Peterman, right? The bus company in Cincinnati. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. That guy is famous for that. Excellent. So we are here with Michael Sonfeld, founder and chairman at Tiger 21 and the author of a brand new book published by Bloomberg and Wiley of Think Bigger and 39 Other Winning Strategies from Successful Entrepreneurs. You can follow him on Twitter at N-W-S-O-N-E-F-E-L-D-T and an awesome book to read for everyone. So hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Michael, you are amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you very Thank much, you. sir. Thanks, guys. You're great. Thank you. Oh, great, great advice, great insights, things that you wish someone would have taught you earlier, now all in a book. Um, and of course, uh, good advice for those who are trying to be an entrepreneur. So. I, I got to tell you, I could have listened to Michael for an entire hour. He was, he's just brilliant. He was brilliant. And I can say the same thing about our next guest, <laughs> who is, uh, who's, not going crazy. who's now definitely a first ballot Hall of Fame future inductee into Disrupt TV. Uh, we have Larry Dignan, the global editor-in-chief of ZDNet and editorial director of Tech Republic. Larry has been covering technology and the financial service industry since 1995, published across numerous media outlets, and a must-follow on Twitter because he's active daily with great content, at L-D-I-G-N-A-N. No pressure, Larry. Now you need incredible Twitter feed every day. Welcome to the Shop TV. <laughs> Hey, good to be back. Great to have you. So let's talk about the hottest you at hand. What are your last six social security digits? And what date were you born? Where were you born? <laughs> what are we talking about today? Uh, well, we can talk about Equifax because it is the ultimate shit show. Um, <laughs> not only did they lose, uh, not only did they get hacked and lose like, you know, 143 million accounts and social security numbers, driver's licenses, and probably even your kids' data, which they don't even have credit reports yet. Um, well, they will now. Why you worse? I mean, it, it's just fascinating. Like, they come out and they Equifax does its, um, you know, they do the mea culpa, and then they send you to a site that oddly looks like a phishing site. Um, it's not on Equifax.com. It's on WordPress. It, I don't know if Vladimir Putin put it out or Equifax. I don't know. I entered my last six. I don't know. Maybe I'll be looking so for I. some marks on my credit score. I've now been sold on the block dark web. <laughs> well, it's already been sold. And then, um, yeah, so I put in my six just to see if I was impacted. And then they tell you, hey, come back on the 13th and put in your calendar because we're not going to remind you. And I guess it was cute because I'm in on the 12th. 
<laughs> yeah, well, you, you did it faster. I, I was just sort of like, eh, whatever. Another day, another bridge. And then um, it's it's just stunning. Like, you know, then there's a tweet storm. They're all vague about it. Um, the Equifax brand, really, they haven't tweeted since like 19 hours ago where they're like, oh, sorry, we understand your frustration. Um, they just look clueless. And Neither confirmed nor deny that statement. Pat, answer number two. And then, and then the crazy <laughs> part is they give you a monitoring service that they run. And you're sort of like, really? Like, can I get a third-party monitoring service that you have nothing to do with? Um, the whole thing is just kind of bizarre. And, and you're just, you just shake your head, right? Because Target did this and handled it fairly well. Home Depot did it. I mean, there's a playbook for this stuff, right? You you put it out there. You update as needed. You, you know, show contrition, sort of hook people up. And, you know, insurance kind of covers it. I think crisis comes as a, at a loss here. <laughs> yeah, you're just like, dude, I mean, this was like, this is like Tylenol 101, right? <laughs> this playbook's been established for a long time. And, yeah, you, you just you just kind of shake your head, and you're like, wow. And, you know, plus the other thing that bugs me is Equifax doesn't get the emotional tie to your credit score, right? This is the United States of America. Everybody's in debt. You are your credit score, right? <laughs> your credit score basically tells the world whether you're a good person or not, or at least pay the bills, show up on time, that kind of thing. I think we're moving and, to clout and cred now. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's it it's real data. It's real stuff. It's it's how you get a car loan in five minutes. Like it's this is the lubrication for the U.S. economy, and they just you know like okay, data breaches happen, but my God, they're they're just out of their minds. Like they should. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad the stock's taking a hit today, but. It, it's pretty ridiculous. Like, well, there's three major credit recording bureaus, right? And that's that's the interesting thing, right? They're all vulnerable, which which we all know. Oh, well, they're completely vulnerable. And the question and is, what are they what are they all doing about it? Is is probably the bigger question. It's like, how in the world, you know, are they going to protect from this? I mean, what this is the Willie Sutton rule, right? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, they exploited like a web website vulnerability, but guess what? The auto dealer is pulling from. They're pulling get your from free credit report. Get your free credit report. <laughs> Right. You know what I mean? Like it's all, it's all on the web. So you th you'd think they'd have this locked down, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure TransUnion and the other ones probably not doing that great either. Yeah. Um, but what it does show is that all these data breaches, they're just getting smarter, right? Because that's the treasure trove. The treasure trove is the credit bureaus, right? And they're not regulated. They the big one. And this is the grand theft. Yeah, I mean this is this is sweet. I mean this this is going this this data is going to bite people in the ass for years to come. And it's when you think about cybersecurity advancements and the role AI will play in terms of you know accelerating breaches, making it even more complex to identify the source. It's 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 this you know all businesses are going to be challenged with with that for many years to come. Okay. Um, this is a question that's going to go to Ray, and then I'm going to follow up with Larry's uh, thoughts. Ray, uh, Constellation published this week the 150 most innovative business transformation leaders. Um, can you talk to us, you know, give us a 30-second overview of the, 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 the findings? And then, you know, Larry, you wrote a piece, and you actually dissected the, uh, the 150 based on industry and gender and and role and title, and I'd like your, 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 your point of view after Ray describes the program. Sure. No problem. Yeah, no, hey, Diane Hinchcliffe and I uh, really wanted to understand who like the early adopters were, who the digital transformation folks were, um, who's doing business transformation. I think part of us were just intellectually curious. We wanted to know, was it being led by CIOs? Was it being led by chief digital officers or CMOs? Like who's driving a lot of this stuff? Uh, and then we started asking 
people around. Like we asked partners, system integrators, we asked vendors, like who's doing cool stuff, you know, what's really happening in the marketplace. And and we ended up with a list of like four or five hundred people. Then we ruled out all the folks that were assholes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we got to 150 people um, that were fun. Uh, part of it was people that were out there that shared, that cared, that gave, that you know, was willing to like pull people aside and 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 tell people what they were learning. And so, so we really wanted to find a group of folks that were uh, a community of folks that were innovators, but also folks that were happy to teach others about what they were doing. And, and that's how we came up with this first 150. Honestly, we probably missed like 500 other people that are on the list. So when people see those folks, please let us know who they are. But we really wanted to build that community and understand who they were and, and what their needs are and, uh, and, and really start that conversation around this. It's, it's not a think tank, but it really is more of a community of folks that are, that are early adopters. Larry, your thoughts after you reviewed the list of 150, which could have been 300. You're right. We've had we've had guests on the show that didn't appear on the list. Um, so you guys are so wildly optimistic. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks there's only 10 out of that. 300 <laughs> business transformation people. Okay, maybe 500. Get the hell out of here. There's no way. It's impossible. It's Saying there's 500 business transformation people, that's the equivalent of saying my kid's gifted. Did you ever notice like an entire elementary school class, it's all gifted people. <laughs> Statistically, it makes no sense. So anyway, stick to 150, make, make, it, make it elite. Maybe 132. Um, actually, you know, go down to 75. Make it really a, make it make it really like Game of Thrones or something. Like have people really make it up. Um, We'll have them the thing that stuck out to me was uh, the percentage of digital or chief digital officers, because you know one of my one of my hobbies is figuring out if that's a real title. <laughs> you know, I I don't think the chief digital officer is as bad as the chief content officer, which I know is just like a retirement home for editor in chiefs, which maybe me someday. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, the chief digital officer, I'm kind of like, ah, is it real? I mean, it's a real position, but I thought it was kind of like a tweener thing, right, where it'll eventually go away. So if you do this list for, say, a decade, I'll be surprised if the chief digital officer is even still around, right? Because everything yeah, will be actually agree with you. We actually agree with you. We, th we think by 2025, there will be no chief digital officers. Folks will be digitally enabled CXOs, and even the word digital will go away um, yeah. in, in that thing. So we actually believe that. The transitional role, we, we agree with you, where someone has to go in there, lead, and in some cases, it's really weird. Like the CDO, like in public sector or in entertainment, right, or nonprofits or in, in government, these are the folks that traditionally would have been the CTO, and, and they just call them chief digital officers. So it's, it's kind of interesting. We saw a lot of dichotomy between that group, and then there's CMOs and marketing folks that suddenly got into digital marketing that became chief digital officers as well. We eliminated those folks from that list, but for to the folks, we kept the folks that were that were actually doing projects and, and, and changing business models. So that was yeah. our definition, but you're right. We, we definitely see that shift. I was most heartened slash interested in the CMO being 7% or whatever percentage it was. I'm going by memory. Um, only because all we've been hearing for three years is how CMOs are going to rule the world. And <laughs> to see they're not driving business transformation is just great news because, um, <laughs> you know, the CMO thing. Yeah. They're the ones with the largest tech budget, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, oh, they have, they have budgets. Do they have know-how? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Uh, We're going to have to put Larry on a panel with a, with a CMO. Ah, yeah, absolutely. You know, his office, he was, Ray, it was 7.48%. So, right. Um, and you, it's surprising. That surprised me as well. Uh, I really did so. The way they're hyped well, the up, it's, it's like, I mean, I realized when CMOs were hyped up, that means they just haven't had the opportunity to fail like CIOs have. They didn't have the track record. So, Excellent. well, anybody who does any tech project is going to fail, right? Yes. You're going to have your clunkers. So yeah. I think CMOs were like the prom queen or CMOs were the prom queen because they just didn't have the opportunity to fail yet. So I'm pretty sure a few of them have been taken out back and shot for various <laughs> tech budget transgressions. Um, so... It was it was interesting to see that was seven percent. Um, so, so, so Ray, a couple other uh, that stood out for me. Only three out of ten were CEOs, or three out of hundred. I'm sorry, three out of hundred. So your CEOs driving 
So that surprised me because maybe it's the maybe it's the maybe it's my company that's unique in that I find myself quite often engaged with CEOs and it's early in the conversation. So I was surprised it was only three. The other is, do you think because the CIO CTO is ultimately tasked for implementing a new technology or digital enabled process where they're talking more about it, but they may not necessarily be the drivers of change. They're just simply asked to implement. We were, we were basically looking at the folks that were most visible that were out there. Okay. And I think that's, these are the folks that we saw. Some CEOs definitely rolled up their sleeves with a lot more hands-on. You'll see one of them, uh, Tim O'Keefe in the Boston area. He's at Simmons Industries. So he's definitely one. He's been hands-on. It's a family business. He's been yeah. trying to modernize them. And so, uh, yeah. That point's key is that, you know, the Simmons guys, it's a family company, yeah, right? It's a hundred million dollar operation or something like that. And they, yeah, they're for, going up against billion dollar companies. So for a CEO to really drive that, you need to get rid of wall street. Right. <laughs> I agree. And because I mean, your job as a CEO is managing shareholders and customers oh, and yeah. landing big deals. You don't have time for all the digital stuff. And you know, the you know the sale the Benioff reference that you had, I think that's because he's your company's growing at 30 40 percent, so you can kind of do that. If you were growing, if you were losing 10 percent of your revenue a quarter, eh, you'd be managing the shareholders, yeah, because no, you don't have to, right? Sure, yeah, you, no, you, have, yeah. you have to tend to the forest fire a lot of times, so no, no, no. I totally agree. that's that's an issue, yeah. um, so hey. I'm switch, switching subjects. You, did you get the box <laughs> with this thing? The box with this thing. Hold on, I'm turning my video on. What's the box? This is the box. This is the box. The, uh, the Samsung Note 8, the replacement for your oh, Note I'm 7. I'm buying that. Largely because <laughs> so. I'm a dork who has to write things down a lot. Um, <laughs> maybe it's a bunch of concussions I had or whatever, but I kind of use the note as a reporter's notebook. So, yeah, I got one. I pretty yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good. I think I think it's a big improvement uh, from the other one. But uh, yeah, well, I was just unpacking it, checking it out. Didn't know if you had it as well. So if it, if it doesn't uh, catch on fire, that's an improvement, right? So <laughs> it was only a hundred funds. It was only a hundred funds. So yeah. all right. Well, Dell EMC at the one year mark. What's going on, man? Is, are they back? Are they not back? Other than Tucci's doing some weird buyout, we're hearing like with, with Steve yeah. Mills doing something. I I don't know what's going on, but the, uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's the one-year mark at Dell and EMC. And, you know, Michael Dell's kind of did everything he said he was going to do. Yeah. They paid down debt. They're milking the storage thing while they're doing hyper-converged and the other stuff. Um, they got pivotal. They're all riding on VMware's coattails for the most part. Um, they're taking PC market share. So, I mean, you got to kind of give them some props. I mean, they've taken two mature businesses, put them together, have enough new stuff going on and you know they're it, it's it, it's been interesting for me because i'm kind of watching like a business case study where you got hpe which has kind of blown itself up and spun off software and services and all this other stuff and then dell said hey we're gonna stay a behemoth and do the scale thing um you know we don't ultimately know how this plays out but you know dell emc's kind of worked i mean it, it's you know it's kind of hard to throw darts at them at this point um yeah. And you wrote that you you wrote that they are not you know they became the primary IT supplier for GE, so they're you know they're landing big accounts. We had Lenovo uh, executive Kim Stevenson on the show last week, so yeah, there's definitely competition and people trying to, you know, stay relevant and grow. Yeah, and and, and they're using you know I mean GE did or uh, Dell did Dell EMC did that deal with Salesforce too, yeah. you know, as long as you guys actually maintain data centers, which we all know it's all going to AWS at some point. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you got to give them a thumbs up. I mean, overall. Hey, premises, betting big on on-prem. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, as long as they keep paying down debt, you know, well, I'll, I'll give them props because you, you got to avoid that private company thing where, you know, you just leverage it up and you don't pay it down and you pay out the dividends and before you know it, you're bankrupt. Um, yeah. Whether it's Toys R Us, I mean, all the retailers that went private. Say it's the same story over and over again, right? They can't. Well, it was really a land grab on real estate. I mean, that's basically what the investors wanted to milk them, get the real estate, and then kick them out. Yeah, now they're getting this. Yeah, now they're getting mortgage um, margin calls, basically. 
Yeah. And we know there's Texas roots there, but what Michael Dell is doing to champion uh, with the recovery um, and the, you know, the disaster in Texas is, is, is inspiring. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, in a big way, in a big way. Yeah, it's yeah. it's all it's all good stuff. Um, good stuff. I'm gonna see them the 23rd. I hope so. And, sure. and you got You know, you got to say. I mean, for them, going private was a great move. So well, we see them on the 23rd. So hopefully, it'll be fun. So September 12th, the moment everyone else that's waiting for that didn't get the other black box. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> the white box. And the uh, new iPhone. So yeah. What, what, what do you think? Yeah. So iPhone uh, eight. I think we're gonna get some, you know, decent cool phones. I mean, luckily I get one through work and one for personal, so I, I kind of get to have both. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't I don't really pick sides per se. I just yeah, it just works out. Um, I, my biggest takeaway for me or the things I'm gonna be looking for is, is more of the platform play. Like I'm very interested in our kit, AR kit that they're doing. Yeah. Um, because what's interesting there is that Apple's going to be able to turn on all these devices, roll out iOS 11, and you're going to have a lot of augmented reality capable machines out there, um, which is good for developers, right? Because developers have kind of gotten screwed in this AR, VR thing, right? You're, you're either on some bandwagon that has no people, Oculus, yeah. HTC, whatever, for the virtual reality stuff. You're doing AR with... You know, a bunch of different players, Android, but Android, you know, Google can't flip that switch and have millions of devices. No, all the up. different versions, the BlackBerry yeah, problem. It's all the fragmentation, right? So, so it's actually, you know, I mean, if ARKit works for any other reason, it's because developers are going to get paid. Oh, they love it. We saw some early demos on ARKit with um, some mapping, with some ads, uh, right. with some uh, retail. It is, it is darn cool. I mean, it's, it's the old Mattio technology that they acquired and put on. Follow that hashtag on your Twitter stream, and you see some example use cases that are just awesome. Wow. Uh, it is wild. Really. Now, Larry, you, you wrote about the angst around uh, Apple's AI chops, and you thought it's overblown. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, the argument here is just that Apple doesn't necessarily have to be first. I mean, I, I think when we look at Apple and AI, we all get carried away and go, oh, my God, they didn't publish enough research per papers. And you're That's like, not wrong. Microsoft's published a ton, and guess what? I, you know, Cortana's, Cortana's, you know, it's the person in the corner at the AI party. We're all trying to hook up with Alexa, right? Google Assistant, who's kind of like this, well, just assistant without a name. Um, we've got Einstein, okay, nice cartoon character Salesforce. Watson, eh, nice guy, hard to implement, right? You know, who knows? A little wonky. Um, but yeah, we're not, you know, and, and we all know Siri, right? Nice, little dumb, but yeah, personable. Um, so I don't know. I mean, my theory with AI is we're all going to have multiple platforms in the background. Sure, sure. Like, oh yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah, there are massive companies out there that have they'll they'll have a Watson pilot. They'll be doing this. They'll be doing that. They might have five or six of these platforms. So I really think, I, you know, the idea that you're going to have one AI is kind of a joke. It's like you're going to have one cloud provider. No, you're probably going to have five or six. Um, so that's kind of the way I see it happening. So in that in that realm, like Apple only needs the AI to differentiate Siri. Sure. Yeah. It doesn't need it. Maybe 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 Siri gets an assist from Watson. Yeah. Or, but, but, but if the if Alexa, if, right? or Lex, whatever AWS has, if, um, if, the, if the App Store was, if you can argue the App Store was maybe the reason why Apple won uh, in this space, do you think AI will be what will ultimately uh, be a deciding factor in terms of which phone you buy? I doubt it, largely because I could probably use Google's AI on iOS. It is. I mean, I, the TensorFlow stuff for translation and machine learning right. is pretty good. So I, I think we're going to have a bunch of different things, right? Like, I mean, I don't know if you can get Alexa on iOS, but rest assured, I'll wind up in an Amazon app somewhere. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest issue is just going to be, you know, you take an Android phone, right? I mean, you could theoretically have Google Assistant, Alexa, you could probably do Cortana too. I mean, 
And then if you have a Samsung, you got this Bixby thing. Who knows who the hell that guy is, right? Um, <laughs> who knows? Alexa, find Bixby. Tell Siri to call Cortana now. <laughs> you're, you're average Android device. Wait, we're all five confused. Five personal assistants duking it out. It's a <laughs> first uh, one to gets more kilowatts. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's just interesting. But but yeah, I, I just don't buy the argument that Apple has to necessarily be first. Fast. Well, that would be first or even the master innovator. I mean, let's face it, Alexa's far from perfect. I mean, well, we're sure. getting the we are getting the hook from our esteemed producer. <laughs> so we have seen Dell EMC. We've talked about what's going on with Siri and iPhone and the AR kit. More importantly, we've talked about Equifax, Samsung, and whatever. But as you know, always an awesome show with Larry. Um, you can call Larry Ding at L-D-I-G-N-A-N, the global editor-in-chief of ZDNet, editorial director of Tech Republic and Tech Pro Research. Definitely follow him on Twitter. Always witty, always insightful. And thank you for being on episode 77. You've got to come back more often. You've got to come back more often. Terrific. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Have a great weekend. Stay Bye. safe. So. <laughs> All right, guys. See you. All right. Cool. Well, this is it, man. Oh, my God. What an excellent episode. We have episode 79 coming up, and I think that is going to be our interesting IoT episode. So what yeah. do we have? Yeah, it's the fastest hour on Friday. So next, uh, next week, episode 79, we have Charlie Isaacs. He's the chief technology officer for customer connections, which is the IoT part of the Salesforce business. He's going to be calling us from London. So he's on the he's at one of the top war, road warriors I know next to next to Ray. Uh, we transitioned from Charlie talking about IoT at Salesforce to Stuart Lombard, the founder and CEO of Echobee, a brilliant product. If you if you have Nest, you probably know about Echobee and vice versa. So one of the fastest growing companies in Canada, and he's going to talk to us about next generation smart home and what Echobee is all about. And then we got Andy Mulholland, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. He's going to put a nice bow around all of the IoT discussions that we'll have in the first 40 minutes of the show. So if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. We look forward to seeing you all next week. Have a great time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Bye. <laughs>